supersonic. 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 Welcome to Supersonic Hospitality Marketing with me, Mark McSee, where we meet the most interesting people in hospitality, marketing, business, and beyond to hear tips, tricks, and tales to help your brand boom. This podcast is sponsored by Vita Mojo, the all-in-one restaurant management platform helping operators grow ATV, reduce tech complexity, and serve guests better. And now, here's a quick word from our sponsors. Vita Mojo is proud to be the headline sponsor of the Supersonic Marketing Podcast. Vita Mojo transforms chaos into confidence for hospitality operators worldwide, empowering brands to streamline order management and take control of their business. With its flexible end to end order management system, Vita Mojo gives you one central place to manage your menu across every channel, brand, and location. But Vita Mojo is much more than an out of the box software solution. The Vita Mojo team are with you every step of the way, providing the partnership you need, the technology you want, and the experience your guests deserve, all in one place. Vita Mojo will help you adapt to whatever the world throws at your hospitality business. For more information, visit vitamojo.com slash supersonic. Want to be recognised as one of the most innovative and best-performing brands in our sector? I'm James Haken, the founder of Restaurant Marketer and Innovator, and here to tell you it's your time to shine. Our 2024 awards are open for entry with 13 categories. Join the likes of Brewdog, McDonald's, Turtle Bay, Box Park, Fuller's, Grind, Gales and Rick Stein restaurants who have all picked up wins in recent years. Visit restaurantinnovator.com to find out more information and apply. Hello, I'm broadcasting from a train so hopefully you can't hear too much noise. I'm on my way up to London to do a wee speech at Rules Restaurant all about hospitality labour problems or challenges and talk a little bit about hospitality rising. And that's all thanks to David Reed from Prestige Purchasing who is pulling together some of the finest people in hospitality to have a round table dinner and we're going to talk about the challenges that hospitality are facing and today we're focusing on labour. However, I thought it was also a good chance and a reminder to get out of my comfort zone a little bit and talk about areas that I don't know too much about. So I asked David, who is from Prestige Purchasing, as I say, to come on and talk about pricing and logistics and supply chain and operational efficiency. And I thought that would be so helpful to a lot of people listening. So it's a fun chat, although it's a very serious and I think David even says quite dry subject, but we go through purchasing and challenges and operational efficiency and top tips from David on how you can make it even better in your business to make sure that you get through this cost of living crisis, prices rising everywhere, supply issues in the chain and also all the other headwinds that are coming your way. Hopefully it's a positive episode and David has a really good view on what it takes to survive long term and some great advice on how you can weather the storm. 
I live on a farm. Ah. And at the moment, uh, the cattle are very noisy. So if there's any cattle noise, it'll just yeah. be authenticity. The, um, the ambience. Yeah. So are, are you not Milton Keynes anymore? No, I live I live in uh, just outside Lanard Lois in Powys in, in Wales. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I moved here 18 months ago and love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. And it's, what was it, was that a COVID change or? Uh, no, it was. Um, it, it's a kind of semi-retirement change, really, because um, you know, Sean Allen, our CEO, uh, has um, has been in role now for four years, five years, and um, you know, we, I wanted to give him the real, yeah, you because know, he's basically we're going to do a transaction uh, probably at the end of this year, early next year, which will um, lead to. Um, him being the majority shareholder of the business, and I just I want I wanted to stop meddling really. So a part of my non-meddle plan was just to remove myself physically from uh, being in the business so much, and uh, and and actually it worked incredibly well because I focused on actually the thing I do best, which is kind of getting out there and uh, being in boardrooms and talking to people and networking. That's the thing I think I do best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in what is the business still in the city of dreams? Is it still there? Uh, the, the business is going, well, it, it's going really, really well. In fact, it's going about as fast as it can, frankly. I mean, yeah. when, you, when you consider that a business like ours is what we do is we sell uh, skills and people. Mm. Um, and so uh, we can't actually scale much faster than about 25, 30% year on year mm -hmm. because we simply just can't train people and onboard them uh, to do the job our way mm. faster. Than. So, yeah, yeah. so at the moment, it's going gangbusters. You know, food inflation is running at just nearly 22% right now. Uh, that's that's going to slip back a bit over the course of the rest of this year. But for the time being, there's an awful lot of people who are really working really hard to try and get their inflation under control. And that's not the only thing we do, but it's a big part of what we do. So it gives me the most money-saving expert pleasure ever to introduce my next guest, who is David Reed, founder and chairman of Prestige Purchasing. Hello. Hello. Oh, you're saying hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's only you and me. <laughs> in that case hello. hello yeah you could do the big freddie mercury kind of thing yeah. um yeah so um so you were saying you know about the challenges that you know everyone has got and in, in food inflation being about you know 22 percent they i just wanted to thank you actually because when we were sending you over the questions and all that this is as you could probably tell not my area of expertise at all so I was trying to send you sensible sounding enough questions that were right. Um, but then on top of that, the pleasure of doing the podcast is sometimes I get to stray into an area that I'm not that okay with. And actually I learn loads, you know, um, mm. so I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it. But we first met each other years ago um, with Anne Elliot. Um, I think I came in to visit you. Yeah. And uh, yeah. In the city of dreams, Milton Keynes, um, where I used to live as well. Um, I, I loved it there. And, uh, you know, it was good, you know, to talk to you then. And I think at that point we were talking about, you know, logistics, the value chain, um, 
I think there was some sort of pyramid stuff you were talking about in terms of um, models and all this. I can't, it's me that'll be getting it wrong. Um, but there was, you know, just this thought of, I guess, unlocking value in your uh, buying capabilities. And then the second thing was that streamlining everything. And it's an area that businesses just don't, A, maybe don't take seriously enough, but B, maybe don't want an outsider meddling in. You know, they can be a little bit, oh no, we've got a procurement manager, thanks. You know, we're, you know, we don't need this advice. So, I mean, what's the changes been since we spoke like way back then? I mean, that must have been 15 years ago or something like that. Really like that. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the supply changed changed a lot mm. um uh, over that period of time but probably more important i think i think we've just been as a, as a business we've been working constantly to try and improve the ways in which supply chain can add value to uh, operators in in the hospitality space mm. and um the, the the two areas we've just got really really hooked on are um are firstly kind of internal decisions and policy and you're absolutely right you know then the the, the the operators need to say, okay, everything's on the table, let's talk about it. Um, because actually loads and loads of things happen day to day. Decisions decisions get made emotionally and instinctively about the way in which an organization puts food on a plate and gives it to their customers. And often those decisions are done without necessarily having the, having the consideration for actually how efficient is it, how wasteful is it, um, decisions we're making are they actually adding value to what gets delivered on the plate or is it just because the chef wants to do it this way or the menu engineer wants to do it this way because they like it so there's lots and lots of stuff about just thinking well how do we ensure that what we actually put on the plate is gets there in the most efficient way and some some examples of that mark would be just simple things like well um yeah we had if you if you take the extreme there are some hotels in london where the chefs get six deliveries from the same supplier every day, mm. uh, which makes their drop sizes, drop being the value of uh, goods that are delivered, ridiculously small. And they kind of get away with it because the suppliers are already set up and in town and so on. But it's incredibly inefficient to do that. Um, and you, know, you can even, you know, if you go into the casual dining space, you get lots of businesses that, um, that have a kind of standard delivery profile of um, of six days a week, when actually in reality, some investment in really good storage and re refrigeration with modern day shelf life for product doesn't need that. And you know, so and those kind of decisions exist all the way through the whole process, like you know, specification of product, um, uh, uh, breadth of ranging of product, the. Uh, yeah, it, it, there's there's an endless almost list of decisions that are made, often without too much thought. That when you put some real thought into actually, what do we need here? Mm. You know, do we need like um, do we need ten different pack sizes of mayonnaise, which you see often in a business? You know, and that's that's then sitting on a supplier's shelf, gathering uh, interest basically. Yeah. So so you know, it, it's really really important to think about this stuff in terms of really optimizing what you're doing. So to come back to your question, there's all those internal decisions that you make about the way in which you set yourself up to be efficient and attractive to suppliers. And then there's how do you manage markets? You know, so actually, how efficient and effective are you at squeezing the optimum pricing from suppliers based upon how you have 
configured yourself to be as efficient and attractive as possible. And those two things are require lots of skills, and lots of data. And if you have those skills and those data, regardless of whether you're prestige purchasing or some in-house team, doesn't really matter. If you have those skills, you can deliver it. Mm-hmm. And often where we specialize as a business is we, we help organizations that don't necessarily have either the skills or the data or neither. Um, and that's that's particularly where we've we've been very successful with organizations that are just recruiting or just at starting their journey in terms of building their supply chain excellence. Mm. So when, yeah, definitely. And you know, I'm I'm thinking about the myriad of of operators that you have out there. So for example, the advice you might give to a single site would be completely different to someone that's got four hundred stores or 400 restaurants and is there something that everyone can do across that gamut you know even at that single site level when they're they don't have the buying power for example well actually the buying power is massively overstated as probably okay. the first say um i think buying power is actually much more is much more about the model that you can be in with your suppliers so just to try and describe this reasonably simply um when you start out on the restaurant journey, you say you've got one site, you will typically uh, have maybe eight, 10 food suppliers, maybe more, um, all wholesalers. So wholesalers are people who buy in products, stick it on the shelf, make a margin, sell it to you out of a catalog. That will be their typical way of working. And when you get to two and three sites, then you start to be able to you know, exercise a little bit of your uh, additional spend and leverage and try and squeeze the price down. But the interesting part happens when you get to sometimes five to 10 sites, uh, then you're in a position where your spend on individual ingredients often gets to a point where you can not have a relationship just with a wholesaler. You can have a relationship with a manufacturer or a producer. Um, often the very first thing to go is, you know, the dairy goes because what they do is they put the milk on the veg lorry, mm. you know, just and that, and they do a deal with, you know, particularly the coffee chains that do a deal with a with a dairy and then have it distributed in a different way. So as you go, you you end up consolidating product into fewer suppliers, more wheels, mm-hmm. um, and then you also are in a place where you're actually sourcing product upstream of the wholesaler. And that basically, if you take the furthest extreme the other way, if you're if you're McDonald's, you're not buying anything from a wholesaler at all because you've got a relatively small number of ingredients. We call them SKUs, stock keeping, stock keeping units. You've got a relatively small number of SKUs. So the reality is that you can source all of those directly with a manufacturer and sometimes even back to the farmer. Uh, and then what you're doing is you're contracting the wheels, which will be much more economic than somebody selling it to you on a wholesale basis. So what people can do on that journey to answer your question is always ensure they're in the optimum supply model. Yeah. And as you can imagine, you start with a lot of suppliers and then you end up with basically one set of wheels. And along the way, how you how you tweak that um, is how you deliver commercial success and actually all the other stuff because it's really important to set you know it's, it's not just about price everyone thinks that you know you you introduced me as and thank you for a, <laughs> a cost saving expert part of it yes it is it's about price but it's also about cost operational cost what happened mm. 
inside the business as well because you spend costs on your supply chain yourself not just with your suppliers but it's also about the uh, the consistency of quality of product you're getting in is about um, reliable availability of product arriving in your you know because the last thing you want is to be out of stock half the time and we saw that a lot immediately after covid um, it's about uh, really good supplier service uh, it's about innovation and good um, uh, product development which suppliers can make a lot of difference to and it's of course it's about sustainability they're the kind of holy seven things that really are what um, what we're here for what what's the biggest mistakes that you see from operators in terms of where you just think oh god you're just hemorrhaging money by not looking at that um but pro it depends which market vertical you're looking at actually oh. um uh if you look at um for example if you look at hotels and uh contract catering where we do quite a lot of work the biggest thing is usually ranging um that they've usually they've usually start the journey with way way too many products and they're constantly changing them and that comes back to my thing about value on the plate you know they, they're they're actually changing them so frequently that actually they're just costing themselves money with no additional volume attached to how much innovation and change that they're, they're delivering into the business so i think i think in that area that's the big one mm. um i i think the in in the more you know you, the procurement gets better if you get into the dining sector and qsr um you know it's more professional more developed but even in even the, in the small businesses within dining and qsr i i, I think there's a there's a naivety which is about which was usually comes from uh we started with these suppliers when we started the business and they tell us we've got fantastic pricing so we have um and actually the truth is that they they don't have um but either a sophisticated supply chain or fantastic pricing they're just they're just loyal to suppliers and and by the way that's something we massively admire it's yeah. a fantastic thing to be um uh you know so supply chain relies on stability right you know if 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 supply chains are predictable and they and they happen every day in the same way all the time then they work like clockwork the minute you start messing with them they can get in a real mess it's, it can be awful so you know the reality is that you've got to try and focus on that stability and therefore loyalty supplies is, is to supplies is a fantastic and very very important part but it mustn't be naive uh loyalty yeah. it's got to be commercial loyalty and it's got to be done with the wise open because most suppliers will be doing exactly the same thing they're loyal to their customer but as long as they're making the money they uh, they're uh, comfortably making uh -huh. it then that changes when it perhaps it is in a position when that's not the same has, has there been like examples of maybe like brand degradation though through efficiency and, and supply so for example i'm thinking chats about you know certain restaurants maybe changing supplier of steak and it's been noticeable or they've been changing the sausage and the breakfast to get it cheaper and then the customer notices i mean is there pitfalls there as well like at all costs M massively i mean the, the first thing to say is that uh about that because it's a really really good point you make mark so procurement is not about saving money Mm -hmm. uh, that's the first thing to say it's because the minute you start chasing the number guess what you get you get a number 
you know, so if you say, well, we've got to get the sausage down from, you know, from 32p to 21p because that's what we need to make our gross margin and we can't change the price, et cetera. The minute you start doing that, you end up totally degrading everything. And the, the most important thing to do is focus on specification and then run really good process. And procurement is basically, you know, I was describing the sort of internal processes and policies and the way you manage markets. If you do those things to an excellent degree, and I mean excellent degree, then you the price falls out. The cost falls out of the process. Mm. But if you chase the money by despecifying the product, in fact, the reason why I'm sitting here is because um, I was I was working in Granada back in, let me think now, God, 1990, 1997, and I walked into the test kitchen because I was procurement director of Granada Group. Mm -hmm. I walked into the test kitchen, which was cooking the new uh, Little Chef sausage. Um, now, the new Little Chef sausage I discovered on that day was actually a sausage-shaped patty. So I said to the development chef who was working you know, on the, our internal client was Little Chef at the time, I said, what, what, why is it called a sausage-shaped patty? And he said, well, because we can't call it a sausage. And I said, well, why can't it be called a sausage? Uh, because it's got less than 8% meat in it. And under EU regulations, you can't call it a sausage anymore. You have to call it a sausage-shaped patty. 8% meat? Yeah, it was, it was incredibly low. And, wow. um, uh, and I got to the point that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back because in that business at that time, um, everybody was just trying to cut cost everywhere in order to deliver cash into the into the business and there was just no good buying going on you know good buying doesn't doesn't despecify everything good buying actually evaluates the value that's delivered on the plate and 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 sometimes frequently a lot of the work we do as a business we end up we end up generating um a cost reduction which then gets reinvested into better specification and that's yeah you know, that that's the way to put value on the plate and yeah. get customers coming back for more so you're, you're dead right unprofessional buying that really chases the number that's that's the enemy of success and and you're right there's loads of people who think that's what we do mm -hmm. spend a long time saying no no no, no that's, that's absolutely not what we do yeah definitely well just rewinding back a bit then how did you get into all this you know what were you sort of hoping to do dreaming to do and then how did you you end up in the the wonderful world of pp um i, I yeah, it's it's a it's, it's fairly simple answer um i was working in granada group and i really didn't enjoy it the, uh, granada had taken um had taken over um forte which i was procurement director of and i just realized that i that corporate life wasn't for me i was 42 mm -hmm. um, i'd, I'd I, you know it was probably the worst possible time to set up a business all my kids were in in private schools and i had the most ridiculously expensive cars and you know and loads and loads of life expenses huge mortgage mm. but actually i was just so fed up with the, the world of corporate stuff that it just um did my head in and uh, as a result i started looking around and Somebody phoned me one day and said, I've got a purchasing company for sale. Are you interested? And I said, I'll have a look at it. And I I basically went, I mean, we bought it for 
we bought it for a year's turnover, uh-huh. uh, which was a, a real bargain. And um, so we kind of, uh, before I knew it, I was running this tiny little, you know, it was, it was only a hundred thousand turnover business. And, um, and, and if I'm completely honest with you, I, I really messed around. Um, for probably the best part of eight or nine years, um, we 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 just had fun. Yeah, yeah. We, we had we had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea. I mean, we were saving people money and we were delivering great purchasing and all those things. But in reality, I wasn't building any value. I was just making money and and enjoying it. So sometime around I think 2010, we um, uh, we said actually we'd better get serious about this. And as a team. We sat down and said, right, okay, where are we going to focus? And basically, we've been becoming increasingly focused ever since. We work just in hospitality, just in five market market verticals, you know, um, uh, pubs, QSR, dining, contract catering, and hotels. Um, We've done one or two things outside those verticals, but pretty much those five. And it's been very successful because I think we set ourselves apart by being 100% transparent, 100% high integrity, um, we charge only for our time. We don't. We don't. You know, lots of lots of people who do purchasing actually make a margin on the product. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it's it's a horrible place to be. And we have to we have to tell people who are loyal to those customers actually how to those suppliers, should I say, uh, how much they're being. Um, uh, exploited, let's put that one. And some, often they don't believe you until we actually present them with the evidence. So that's kind of where I, where we got here. Um, and we've success has just been about good partnerships. You know, like we we performed a great partnership with CGA for uh, the food service price index, which mm-hmm. has been hugely successful for us. Um, and and actually just uh, focusing on market verticals and delivering good good value to our clients. And then in terms of you know basically building a startup and coming from corporate life, you know, what challenges did you face? Because like, you know, I get, you know, probably weekly calls from a new tech business, let's say, and, and hospitality and they go, how do we build a business in hospitality? And a lot of people these days are building SaaS products. They expect to build that business instantly. And I'm like, it feels like it's a long game. So, I mean, how how did you even go about that? You know, start starting that journey. Uh, I, it's it's a really good question, Martin. Really well, um, really well um, framed. I, I think I think I was I think I was lucky because I came out of Granada Group, which was the previous Forte Group. So my network was pretty big. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the early days, it was just about me and a couple of other guys, and. Um, we, we we knew an awful lot of people and we kept getting phone calls saying come and come and help us with our purchasing so and that's what i meant about it being um it it being kind of a bit all over the place because actually the phone just kept ringing and, mm. and people kept approaching us so really for the first 10 years i mean we were we were working in the united states we were working in barbados um we had a, we oh, set up a franchise in Ireland. I mean, you would believe the ridiculously non-strategic thinking we applied to the business. It was it was comical, um, but actually, all that eight nine years, we were learning all the things that we shouldn't be doing yeah. in terms of building a value business. And uh, by the time we sat down in twenty ten and went, oh yeah, right, okay, now let's build something that we can 
actually feel proud of and something that will actually have some significant value in its own balance sheet. By the time we got to that point, we'd kind of made all our big mistakes. And I think you have to take life not too seriously mm. when starting a business up. You just have to go for it, try and make money, and try and learn on the way. Yeah. And what about work-life balance in that aspect? Because, you know, I've got my own business as well, and, yeah, I'm not very good at that. I mean, how how did you manage all that? You know, because you've got the kids and family and all that stuff. You know, did you manage to have any work-life balance? Um, did you, do you know what? I, I, I did, and, and I, you know, the people I work with think I work really hard, which is perhaps true um, in the sense that I try to – I try to be really present in in my business, and I try to be uh, really present in the market in which I work. Um, so, but but I think actually, if you can't make time for the things that you love mm. uh, when you have your own business, then whose fault is it? Mm. You know, and and I I think you you have to you have to keep it in your mind. And yes, I I probably had pushed the envelope at times. Uh, in fact, there, there'd be one woman who's no longer my wife who would definitely uh, tell me I pushed the envelope at times. But, you know, sometimes you also push the envelope because actually you don't want to be doing something else. So, you know, you make your own choices and you have to live your own life. So that's, I'm sorry, it's not a particularly um, inspiring answer, but, it, but for me, it's the truth. It's like you have to make make the space. Otherwise, what's the point in living? Yeah, well, and you're exactly right. And funnily enough, I'm I'm just back from a a, a, a meditation retreat um, in in Valencia. So I was uh, a wee bit stressed out there, and I thought I'd better go and you know go and chill out for a bit. And uh, coming back from that, you know, that's definitely in my mind. And I think through this series of the podcast, you know, we're going to cover it a bit more. You know, the sort of more human side of it all because you know everyone looks at each other and thinks you know everyone's doing great and, and all the rest of it but you know there is uh there is some you know pitfalls to you know being successful um and and working hard you know you know there's always a, a little bit of uh, a week of destruction behind you at times um so you know it's, it's good to be honest and, and cover that in the, in the times that we're in as well you know I, I i think you're right and i'm i'm very i think i'm i think personally i'm lucky um i my big passions kind of formed very early in my life. You know, my mine are kind of music, food, and nature. Mm. So, you know, I, I climb a lot of hills um, and I do a lot of cooking. I, I trained as a chef very early on in my career. And um, so love cooking even now. And and I play uh, I play music and, and write music and perform music um, as well. And... I think what what that's given me is that almost all of those are very physical. They're very, you know, you you, you don't think about them. You do them. You know, mm. you, you you're actually doing something physical. And I spend an awful lot of time either talking to people in, at work or um, or at a screen or a PowerPoint presentation or in an Excel spreadsheet. And actually, when you're doing those things. It's such a contrast, and it it actually helps you keep your well. Certainly for me, it's helped me keep my head straight over the years, and and that that's been constant all the way through my life. Yeah, well, I got a bit of advice when I was off. Just because we're touching a subject, and there was a an acronym called Shield, which I thought was really good, okay. and it 
so it was a, it was a 85 year old Chinese guy and it was like a little video that someone showed me. So basically it was S sleep. So get your eight hours. Um, H was handle stress. So however you do that, uh, I was interact with other people. So make sure that, you know, you actually go and make the effort, you know, cause it can, you know, can be sometimes you just need a breather, but you know, it's good to do that. Uh, e was, uh, exercise. L was, and to your music point, learn something different, you know, learn yeah. something new. So with music, you always keep learning you or do. writing or whatever. Yeah. And then D was diet. So yeah, I thought that was a, a good wee acronym to just keep going around in your head, you know, to sort of get yourself out of your uh, comfort zone and, and stay away from your inbox as much as you can. Yes. And um, yeah, I, I noticed there wasn't any um, getting totally rat on a Friday night or anything like that in there. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's uh, that's the next stage. That's the next stage. Yeah. <laughs> Peas for pissed. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's not in there. Um, but yeah, so it was really interesting. So in terms of the boardrooms that you're sitting in right now and the calls that you're getting and all the rest of it, I mean, what really are the themes, you know, is it, you know, what are, what are people sort of saying to you? Is it just, we can't do this any longer. We're going to go out of business. Um, you know, what, what's themes are you seeing coming through when people are looking at their P and L's? Um, I, I think it's, it's, um, it massively depends upon the market vertical, first of all. Mm. Um, and, and then secondly, uh, how well funded the organization is. Um, it, it's really interesting. You see, you see organizations with, you know, particularly, I think you know the the pubcos have got clearly got no rent. Um, you, you you look at uh, organisations that have got refunded during COVID. Um, they've they're relatively cash rich. Uh, they have a totally different mindset. And and I think also there's a there's a band of um, organisations, some many of whom are clients of ours. You know, people like like Pizza Pilgrims and um, Deshume Loungers who are genuine market leaders in terms of um, putting putting fantastic product on a plate and uh, and really exciting the customers and getting amazing loyalty. And what is interesting at those businesses are gravitating to us because actually they just believe in delivering excellence into their business, whether it's right at the back door or whether it's right at the front, you know, in, in the front of house um, with their customers. And they're, they're just, they're very open-minded, all of them, they're, they're not open-minded about what they want to achieve uh, in the restaurant or in the kitchen, mm. but they're very open-minded about how they achieve it. And they're really interested to, uh, to come back to your shield acronym, they're really interested to learn mm. about how they can make a difference to what they're doing. So those there's a there's a kind of group of uh, customers in our business that are very much of that mindset, and they're fantastic to work with mm. because they you know they they are so open minded and so positive about change. Um, at the other end of the scale, and there's there's a big sort of middle block as well. But at the other end of the scale, there there are some people who are just desperate to save cash because you know the reality is if you just look at the core numbers. Um, we're at 21.5% uh, inflation um, in the sector. Obviously, some of the bigger players, much less than that, um, but some of the smaller players, a little more than that. Um, 
we're, we're at fairly high inflation, about 20%. And if you look at the average menu inflation in, in the sector, you see various numbers being banded around, but they're usually in the in the early teens, that, mm. you know, 12, 13, 14% inflation. So you've got a big gap between cost inflation and and, uh, and selling price inflation. So those, those businesses, if they are tight on cash, are really beginning to feel the pain. And the difficulty is that you have a situation where you know the 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 climb actually started um early in the year before last that's when inflation started climbing and um we're going to be in a place where we're 21 percent now we're predicting we'll exit the year this year at about 12 maybe 12 12 and a half okay um which is still um four times five times the level of inflation back in 2018 so it's really high still, and it, we expect it to drop to three or four percent, maybe by the middle to end of 2024. Um, but the compound effect of all of that is something like a 40% increase in cost, mm. um, you know, over over that period since 2019. So yes, if people, um, you know, lots of operators have done lots of stuff other than just supply chain. They've done loads loads of work around menu ranging. They've done a lot of work on individual dish margins. Uh, they've done a lot of work on simplifying what they're what they're doing so that they can extract the maximum margin out of it. Um, so there's a lot of and a lot of also, you know, reconstituting dishes so that cheaper ingredients or lower cost ingredients are used to uh, to mitigate inflation. But the reality is, the longer this goes on, um, the less protection that businesses get because inflation's still roaring away mm. so I, I i don't know if that answers your question it does it does it's yeah. very varied actually is the truth well just flipping to the other side of things for a second in terms of the actual consumer right i mean yeah. we are all only going to wear so much for fish and chips and a burger and all yeah. the rest of it right so that there's going to be that upper limit and most uh, meetings that I'm sitting in right now is how can we be busy at lunchtime? Lunches are going to be a bloodbath and mm -hmm. already are, but it's going to be even worse about going out for lunch and in yeah. you know earlier parts of the week as well at, at night. And with that, it's what can we do? And people are looking for this big fancy way. And it's like, look, to be honest, you're probably going to have to provide incredible value that you know it is going to be a volume game in terms you know you're not going to make a lot out of it because people just aren't going to go out on a tuesday night and drop 80 quid 120 quid anymore you know yep. so we've been working through that from your point of view you know what are you seeing in terms of menu cost trends the price you know where do you think the the tipping point is before people just stop going out altogether you know because there's going to be an upper limit isn't there I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm well placed to answer the question, but I'll, mm. I'll, I'll have a go. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think the, the first thing to say, it seems to me, is that um, this cost of living crisis, as it's as it's pitched by the media, um, is not a cost of living crisis for a huge proportion of the population. So that there's a, there's an awful lot of pretty wealthy people out there who are broadly unaffected by what's happening. Um, and you know, particularly, particularly the over fifties, of which I uh, count as one. You know, just, uh, just, <laughs> only just, only 
um uh, you know no mortgage no kids n no serious you know um uh, way down uh, weighing you down out outlays so i think those markets are probably still going to be pretty buoyant to be honest mm. with you and and i think qsr uh is already showing that it's you know the quick service restaurant sector is still booming mm. because that it's really great value as particularly compared to what's happening in the mid ground I think where the where the struggle is, is and it's interesting to see what's happened uh, only this week with um, ranking Benny's big table and uh, and TRG. Um, you know the big struggle is to is to have relevant brands in that in that mid space. And I do think that there's there's you know there's it's it's it is going to be for a period of time. It's going to be difficult. Mm. But but the the, the truth is that. Inflation is now falling, um, so I, I do think we are going to. We, we've probably got fairly close to the peak of interest rates now, mm. and interest rates will fall into twenty twenty four, which will ease mortgage payments. And I think we have a track record as a country of actually learning to spend again after tightening our belts. You know, you look back at the two thousand and eight crash. By by 2010, we were back spending again like we were before, mm. and so I think this is why I talk about the balance sheet thing. It's a, it's about if you've got the cash to eke your way through it. There's a lot. The other thing I say is there's a lot of organisations who are just a shutting on unprofitable days, as you rightly say. I mean, it's mm. just you try getting a restaurant table in anywhere decent on a Monday night now. It's almost impossible to do it, and even on these days, it's difficult. Um, so I think that's that's a that's that's going to be a big change. But there's an awful lot of operators who are really looking hard at sh shedding any sites which are just not cost effective. And these see, these feel to me like really good things. Mm. I know it's painful for the organisations that go through that, but you know, every every now and then you need a a, a, a period of time like this for the fit to demonstrate their fitness and the weak to be culled. Yeah. And yeah. You know, I, I think it's good. It's healthy. Um, I, I don't think the organ, I don't think the, uh, I don't think the country or our sector um, is, has a disbenefit from it. I think it only makes the sector stronger. It was a real affront years ago to close a site, wasn't it? You know, it yeah. really was like, you never spoke about it. I worked in a couple of organizations where, they'd almost made a few fibs on the organisational timeline to, you know, miss out the, you know, the, well, ginger-haired stepchild, I suppose you could say. But, um, but you know, in terms of that, you're going, oh, um, now, I actually think when Jamie, uh, after the Brexit thing, and he said, oh, I've closed these sites because of Brexit, it became a little bit more acceptable. But this week you've had um, Frankie and Benny's and Chiquito's. I mean, that is a big conversation, which is on what axis do you think that could be successful right so um it's a brand that needs a lot of work to to become re-relevant um i think it could be but it's going to be hard um you know i think there's a lot of work i think if anyone can do it that team can i mean they seem to have, have great success but i mean they've just not stayed up with the with the pace so they could fall easily into little chef camp right so yeah. that's um yeah. That's going to be really interesting. And I've taken meetings with Frankie and Benny's and Chiquitos in the past, you know, and it was just, 
really difficult to see how that's that that's going to get rebooted. So that'll be interesting. But then you go, is it a property play? You know, where they just keep a couple of them and they'll flip their most successful um concepts into those and maybe not have as many Frankie and Benny's and Chiquitos and then just have a couple of kind of flagshipy ones. I mean, I don't know. Um but Milton Keynes there was a big Chiquitos. That was uh, that was always a thing with the plastic cactus outside it, you know, uh, uh, yeah, 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 um, there. Yeah. Um and then uh, Patty and Bun I think are doing a CVA. Yeah. Reportedly. Um so that's interesting as well. Um and again, I guess it comes down to brand standout doesn't it i mean I, I think it's a great product and a nice wee brand um so it's a real uh shame that they're, you know they're having to kind yeah, of go, yeah. go, go, go through that you know i think it's a fantastic product and i've, I've quite a vibey cool brand hi here's a quick message for all hospitality operators who want to reward recognize and retain their brilliant teams i want to introduce you to my new friends at grateful Grateful is a revolutionary cashless tipping and trunk platform disrupting tipping all across hospitality. Grateful's mission is to help create a more grateful world for hospitality teams by building the best tipping platform out there that is truly built around your business, as Grateful understands just how unique your business and team are. So, if you're a restaurant, hotel, bar or cafe, and no matter if you're a national chain or just a single site, Grateful simplifies Trunk for you by using their tech know-how to provide 100% transparency for your teams. Grateful streamlines your operational overheads through API integrations into your EPOS, Rota, Payroll and more that takes the headache of handling tipping away for you and your teams. Grateful are a fast-growing, ambitious team that are fanatical about customer service and are always striving to do the right thing for you. With the new legislation just around the corner, it would be worth chatting to Mason and the team at Grateful to see how you can modernise your tipping for a happier team and a happier business. To find out more, please visit Grateful.com. That's G-R-T-F-L.com. That's G-R-T-F-L.com now. creative agency for the hospitality sector, Saved by Robots create compelling brands and memorable experiences through great design and engaging storytelling. From Scottish Restaurant of the Year Sugarboat to Tip Jar, the digital tipping platform that's taken over the world, Saved by Robots excel at bringing ideas to life. As well as developing new concepts and refreshing existing brands, the robots provide outsourced graphic design to help multi-site operators grow with confidence. Check out their work and get in touch at savedbyrobots.com. Then, also, I've just read, just before I was talking to you, I nipped up for a, a coffee there, and um, on pricing, Slug and Lettuce are reportedly looking to put, like phase their pricing for mm. weekends to make it more expensive. Is that a good idea? Is that a thing? Do people do it anyway? But if everybody does it, which is more than possible, yeah, then then we could be in a different place. But I, I think to, just to go back to your comments about uh, about TRG and um, and Big Table, I, I I suspect there's quite a lot more to play out on that journey. Yeah, it seems to me. Um, 
you know, a big table of course have bought banana tree, and I think I, I think they're they're thinking they'll they will definitely have an eye on where where in the Chiquitos um, and Frankie and Benny estate they can roll out banana tree because I think that's that's very important. I think your your point um, your point about um, Patty and Bun is a really good one too, which is I think there are a number of actually really good quality um, uh, small operators with very good brands who may actually be in some distress so big you we, we may see big table actually doing something of a refresh they may even I mean, you know I, I don't know whether this is ridiculous or not but they may even ditch frankie and benny's and chiquito or at least marginalize them uh and push through other brands because the one thing that trg have proved if you is if you if you buy a quality business and really push it it will grow for you and that's what we've done with wagamama i think you know there was an awful lot of people in the sector who i spoke to who went oh god trg they're gonna they're gonna piss all over wagamama yeah. and they haven't they've absolutely strengthened it and that you can see it in the results mm-hmm. so i i don't know i think there's i think there's just more to play here than just what is perhaps the the, the immediate transaction yeah uh, i'm definitely good for trg that's for sure I'm fascinated by it because, you know, as a brand person, you do go, at what point do you just um, retire a brand? Do you retire a brand? You know, all these kind of quick, like, you know, like you retire a basketball jersey or whatever, and you go, oh, I don't know. Like, you know, and it's, um, like, I'd love to be sitting in that meeting to go strategically, what are we what are we doing with this? And also, I love a, a damsel or a, whatever the male equivalent is. Uh, in distress i love going in and trying to save something and trying to reboot it but i think um with frank and benny's i think it's definitely had a few design changes what is slightly sad about it is the latest launch of chiquitos in portsmouth actually looked phenomenal i saw like the online stuff and there was like djs and it was packed with you know the tiktok crowd and and all that so i thought oh well that's job done there you know um frankie and benny's always of late were fantastic on the PR front. They were always doing something brilliant that was PRable. They're always in the newspapers. Um, but I just don't know if that translated through to sales. Um, you know, um, which, which is a tough one. And then just round the country, what are you seeing as well? Um, you know, just in terms of operators and costs and all the rest of it. You know, I'm obviously Scottish and I've got a, a few Scottish clients. And you know, yep. we have conversations like, can we put a pint over four pounds? You know, in, in, in those kind of conversations. Whereas I'm walking in Brighton on last Monday and you know there's an Amstel board saying Amstel only four nine four fifty and you're going, Well, this is a bargain now, you know. So it's like really like chalk and cheese, you know, those two ends of the country, you know. Uh, it, it it absolutely is. And you know, no, no, in fact there's three ends of the country because I'm I'm speaking to you from Wales. Right ah, now. don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. <laughs> <laughs> you want a value for money place to live, Wales yeah, yeah. is it. It's yeah. uh, it, it is cheap as chips to live here. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, food's food's not expensive and, and the pubs are incredibly good value. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not saying that to to uh, promote Wales, although it's <laughs> <laughs> your new job as a visit Wales uh, chair, yeah. <laughs> I've got my application in. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I think what it, it it is interesting because actually the fundamentals in this market are very different here. I mean, I I, I live close to a place called Lanidloise, and um, it's it's a really weird place because 
at one point it had 14 pubs it's only got it's only got a population of 1500 uh, people just over about 1600 mm. uh at one point it had, had 14 pubs it's currently because of the problems with um uh, with the economy in the last year currently there's i think 10 um but and and some of the restaurants have closed down mm. and i think it's 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 in those parts of the economy where what you see about that kind of um, polarization of the market you know i was describing earlier where there's a band of people who are actually doing really well mm. and people who are really struggling and then there's a bit in the middle uh, it, it, that that polarization is so much more stark uh, when you get the further away from london you get actually i think is the truth yeah. and it's certainly very stark here there's one or two businesses doing really well here uh, and the rest are even that are quite good they're really struggling to make money and that's where it becomes really hard you know your conversation earlier about you know people being desperate about saving money that's that's the truth right now for a lot of operators in wales and a couple of points on that you know when you're looking at a business and looking at costs that it's leaking and all the rest of it do you see a lot of um you know stakes walking out the door after a shift or you know the odd bottle of booze going away and, and things like that you know do you, are you seeing an increase in those kinds of areas as well do you need to consider that um it, it, in all honesty we don't really get very involved in that because mm. our our um our role is to build supply chains supply. That get food to the back door Mm -hmm. uh, what happens in terms of conversion from there on is we don't we we, we do t we do touch on food waste for example mm -hmm. but we'd we'd rarely get involved in um we rarely get involved in um in theft i think what what i would say is that you know it's been 26 years i've been running this business now when we started this business um fraud at the back door rather than just theft of stakes out the back door uh, was really rife. I mean, the, the old brown paper bag discussion. It, yeah. it, it was one of the things we were often asked to look at, you know, straight up. It's still around today. We've, we've stumbled across it three or four times probably over the last 10 years. But broadly speaking, the established supply community is now so far away from that, you know, that it's not, they're not looking to do that. So it, you, you really have to get a kind of backstreet trader uh in if you're a chef that's a bit corrupt and what want to take 300 quid a, uh, a a week out of your um in cash out of your supply chain yeah. so that's a, that's a really good thing i'd stop loss i'm really not sure i can answer the question yeah yeah no just um it's just interesting i'm thinking back to my my yo sushi days and the, yeah there was like you know cctv steakhouse and all this kind of stuff you know like to see what was going on some of it was unbelievable and like i was so naive you know like i just never knew that stuff went on you know I'm far too honest <laughs> so, yeah. in, in 1997 uh for 14 months three weeks five days 12 hours and eight seconds uh I ran a hotel in Kirby in Liverpool I know Kirby yeah uh, and um it, it, I really have had very mixed feelings about it because I met some wonderful people people there but unfortunately um I would say you know the average hotel manager these days because I was a hotel manager of this hotel um would these days would probably spend i don't know uh less than five percent of their time on crime uh -huh. in kirby i literally spent 40 percent of my time dealing with crime 
in, in, including as you as you rightly point out spending for example spending all one weekend in a hotel bedroom with binoculars watching watching the kitchen back door to catch the bastard who was taking um uh, strip loins out of the uh, out of the kitchen and taking them home and actually then selling them on the black market down in Liverpool it was the only way we could catch him was <laughs> was to yeah, yeah. Oh, that's and then what about the staffing crisis and supply as well so I mean are are they all having to jack up wages there as well because obviously we're seeing the hospitality people are costing like a third more now to to work with us it's harder to get people in supply just facing all the same problems staff shortages and all the rest of it well there's a really interesting perspective on that actually um which is w w one of the things we do is we track inflation by category um so you know meat and poultry fish bread etc uh and there's a, there's a there's a category which is called other food products because we can't think of a more imaginative name for it than that um and and basically other food products includes things like chilled ready meals um you know stuff that gets made uh before being sent into a kitchen to be used so what what is interesting is is that right now and for some months now um we're seeing inflation actually kind of flattening out across raw ingredients uh but we're still seeing inflation running away on prepared ingredients and i think the reason is really straightforward it's the point that you've just put your finger on which is that there's just so much more labor and energy in a pre-prepared product and uh, you're dead right, the whole supply chain, all the way from farm or fishery or whatever, all the way through to plate, the whole supply chain is really struggling with labor and energy right now. Those those are the, the obviously commodity market pricing is is still very high um, on food, but la the labor and energy and energy, including transport, diesel, for example, mm -hmm. and electricity, those are the things that are driving inflation and and will continue to do while you know we've i've seen we've we're just this last week we're at eight percent wage growth in the uk currently now and when that's while well, that's happening that's happening throughout our supply chain so guess what that's not going to do anything else other than feed straight through into pricing that's a really good point you make because one of the one of the most fascinating days i ever had was when i worked with prep so i worked in prep for a year and uh, we went to Reynolds and somewhere else, I can't remember, for the day. And just seeing, my eyes were open, 24-hour operation, yep. you know, dedicated team to prayer, you know, all the logistics that happened, everything. And there was one guy's job was to measure the pressure of the avocados for prep. <laughs> that was his job and we wrote a wee story about him because we always wrote wee stories about our suppliers and here's so-and-so and he's the yogurt guy and yada yada um but uh tony at reynolds has never let me live it down because i spoke about it on stage and called it an aubergine so since then he's just every time he sees me he just talks about an aubergine but um but yeah it was this wee guy's uh job it was just but it was fascinating there was a whole prep team they had their own email system their own comms their own you know forklifts are going around they're wearing you know prep branded up pret and you're just like and i don't think a, a lot of marketers never mind a lot of consumers really understand everything that's going on um you know on, on that back end you know how much is going into it really yeah yeah i mean it's an enormous amount and it, it you know we we all as a sector 
bemoan Brexit, at least a lot of people do. And the impact, you know, if you're looking at Brexit, of course, the cost of trade from Brexit has risen, you know, so I, I think we're seeing three to 4% more inflation than than if we had stayed in the EU, mm. uh, just simply through the, you know, the, the administrative costs of trade. But the really big impact of Brexit is the is the million uh, Europeans who left UK in 2020 didn't come back. And, um, and it's really important to understand, in my view, that um, whilst our sector suffered massively from that exodus, the whole supply chain did. And, you know, particularly if you remember that, uh, I'm trying to think where it was now, was it, um, it was the August after the big lockdowns in uh, 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, that August was hell in our sector. I, I was on holiday, um, ended up working 18 hours a day being on Zoom calls because literally every client we had was in distress because the whole supply chain just melted. And it and it melted partially because um, that you know it was suddenly very busy and you know the the transition from ticking over into suddenly very busy just crippled every single wholesaler and bar none. But the big thing was that they just couldn't get the staff. They couldn't get the drivers. They couldn't get the pickers. Uh, so they just couldn't get on top of it. And it took um, uh, well, it was actually July when it really started properly to be a problem. And it took through until about the end of September for them to get on top of it. This is an incredibly long period of time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot going on there. And then in terms of pricing as well, I mean, obviously pricing is a critical aspect from the other side of things. Are there like models that you work to or theories or strategies that you give your clients when you're talking to them about how to go from cost to price? Because a lot of the time I see it where somebody just slaps a, arbitrary number on it or they go jimmy across the road's charging this for a pint we'll do five pence less and all that you know how how do you advise on those things well, well it, it, again thank you really 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 good question the, the the first thing to say is that the strategy is really simple right it's it's the strategy is have really skilled procurement people in your business whether that's a third party like us or or um your own homegrown people uh and then give them the data enable them to get the data to be able to ascertain whether they're performing well and that's that's a, that's the simple strategy right so the the acid test is actually what, what how, how well is your pricing doing against market and time and time again we meet operators who say well i'm doing pretty well and when we actually benchmark against you know, we, we we have a thing called good market pricing so uh, the, you know the pricing that is is competitive in the market not high margin price for the supplier so we don't look at the average we look at the good market pricing um we, we, when we when we benchmark um which we do a lot of just benchmarking and some cases we do more and help people with their buying but when we benchmark we are often finding operators eight to twelve percent behind good pricing in the market and one of the big problems is that, is that you know they they think they're doing well because they're using competitive processes and all that sort of stuff but they've got no real acid test mm. which is why we keep talking about get the skills in and get the data in mm. um because you know we basically we run the food service price index which enables us to track inflation by category 
And we also run um, a database with tens of thousands of prices of current months uh, on products. So, you know, we know how much a, um, we know how much a box of chips should be costing uh, in September. You know, and so and and we do that across the piece on 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 every product. And benchmarking helps people ascertain whether they're in the right place. So and that's that's what we do. And how can people get a hold of the the index through CGA? How how does that work? Do they need to pay a price? Is it free? How, how does that work? Uh, okay, so there's there's a there's a there's a monthly uh, press release which gets released to the whole industry um, and features in lots and lots of different publications, which gives the headline number. And um, the headline number to it is a is a useful guide, mm. but of course. Um, the headline number is made up of uh, 12 categories. And if your buying profile is different than the 12 category profile that we with, that we do from the whole market pricing, mm -hmm. then you will find that your number isn't, you know, your comparison of a headline number is not enough. Um, so we sell a subscription service for uh, the food service price index with CGA. Uh, where basically you get a monthly uh, digital report. Uh, it gives you loads of insight about what's happening to pricing and why, and also sets out forecasts for the future. And in fact, quite a number of, it's interesting, quite a number of suppliers buy it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And to understand what's going on in the market. Yeah. But also a lot of, uh, a lot of operating boards use FPI as a, uh, a yardstick to measure the performance of their procurement team. So the inflation is one thing, but the acid test is actually what you're paying for a price for a box of chips now. Mm. That's, that's the ultimate test. It, it, you know, inflation is just about how it moves over time. We're checking uh, their own homework a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> checking their own, checking they're good enough themselves. <laughs> I mean, the the the. The, the the really important thing about supply chain is it's 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 very dynamic. It's changing the whole time. So really great procurement people like lots of data around them and like like lots and lots of um, uh, really focused today activity to really understand whether value is being delivered, as well as being very strategic about how they structure their supply chains. So that's that's just excellence at, at work. And what about sustainability into this mix then? Because it is obviously important, but when you're potentially your business on its knees, you get cost, you get this, that, it can play second, third, fourth fiddle. So how do you work that into the picture? Oh, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good question and a very important one, actually, because we, I mean, let me, let me start by saying, I think the food system is, um, to put it politely, is broken. Mm. Um, uh, and and one, of the, one of the big problems with the, with the food system, I'm sure everybody knows, is that we, we kind of built the food system to maximize productivity um, in the in the kind of post Second World War period when we thought that the population growth would actually end up with half the planet starving. So there was a huge focus. You remember the, the EU were you know was uh, they were incentivizing country, nations to just overproduce just to make sure that everybody had enough food. And the truth is now we 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 produce enough food now to feed the world where where there is. Um, uh, hunger and there is still hunger in the world. Um, it is usually for political or logistical reasons that people aren't getting the food. Uh, it's not. It's not to do with our ability to produce it. Um, 
And the other thing that's probably just worth pointing out is that according to UN statistics, uh, we actually waste approaching one third of all the, the food we actually produce on the planet. So uh, it, it, it kind of angers me when, um, in angers probably sure irritates me when, when people say, well, we can't afford to go to be sustainable mm. because actually, even if we cut that food waste in half i'm speaking at a global level and frankly of course this the, actually delivering all this is not easy but if we cut that food waste in half that would effectively deliver between 15 and 20 percent reduction in total cost of food and that could easily fund really sustainable food production across the whole globe so it we we just like all the big challenges we have uh, in the world We've just got to work out how to get from A to B. Mm -hmm. uh, and it can be funded just by reducing waste. Yeah. So to come back to your question, because it is a difficult thing for, you know, if you if you're running um, a small restaurant business, you know, how, how do I do it? Well, I think, you know, the, the obvious thing um, is to kind of take the mantra of the Zero Carbon Forum, uh, which is, you know, focus on carbon first. Um, because that is probably the most urgent thing that we need to do on sustainability. And um, one of the things we do with uh, with them and others is is look at carbon measurement, um, because actually, if you start to if you start to measure the carbon in dishes, um, you can start to understand a whole load of stuff about, for example, um, what what sort of ranging should we have for mm. dishes, you know, um, yeah, we've we've been doing some work with an organisation in um, in Romania uh, who run a huge spa, and their uh, um, and their biggest selling line is burgers, and and they import all the beef for those burgers uh, from Argentina. So it's about as unsustainable as you could possibly imagine. <laughs> um, so what we've been doing is helping them try and both work out how to and get better quality sustainable uh, beef from a much more local source mm. but also actually look for ways of engineering you know we've been we've been experimenting with sliders so that you can have a beef slider alongside a half and half slider and then a ve vegetable protein slider mm. which you sell at a lower cost than the beef burger and you know doing things like that make a make a difference to actually the menu mix mm -hmm. and therefore the amount of carbon you expend and the amount of beef you buy also there's a there's a brand point in there too right you know if you're a spy you're not expecting people to be burgering it up you know i don't know maybe <laughs> sorry well there's just like a brand point so you said it, it's a spa right yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah Absolutely. so you know i i don't know if it'd be the first thing i'd be thinking about <laughs> i've kind of had the cucumbers on my eyes and all the rest of it i'm going to then go and have a big burger i don't know yeah it's, <laughs> it is it is a really good point but of course you know their their uh response to that would be well what customers want there's lots of other things on the menu and that's what yeah and there is always that balance there mm -hmm. and uh, you know i think it's a bit like in any operation i think as as operators we have we have the ability in a way that supermarkets don't we have the ability to influence people to try new things mm. um, and we have the ability to influence people about how they think about food in a way that supermarkets really struggle to, to always do 
And I think that's a huge responsibility for our sector and one that we should take more seriously, actually. Definitely. Um, and then just over the years that you've worked in this, is there like a success story that you can talk about, you know, one where you've really been proud of turning something around or are you NDA'd to the help? <laughs> um, well, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's we, what, what we don't like doing is uh, is talking openly about named clients mm -hmm. because you know that we, we always feel a bit awkward about it but um i i think we've done we've done so many amazing things you know re recently we've done a whole load of analysis for a fairly large um uh dining chain who have uh had a um a central kitchen which was about to fall over um was uh, they had they had no headroom um they uh, they also had a number of other kind of commercial objectives that they wanted to deliver into the business, but they couldn't do it under the current supply chain structure. And we, you know, in fact, that one of the founders uh, was very skeptical when we when we said we could help. Uh, and it's been very rewarding, having just finished the uh, analytics stage of the project where we basically built them a route map, um, which will actually deliver them a, a lower cost supply chain but with loads more headroom in their cpu uh, and all of the product and commercial objectives that they they wanted and it's just doing stuff like that that we yeah. enjoy doing the most yeah. is because it's you know the reality is that it what we do is a combination of good application of process and good application of intelligence but at the same time, we love a challenge. You know, we just love the idea of, you know, with this particular business of going, well, yeah, it's not perfect. Let's try, let's see how we can change it to be perfect. And we've, you know, they're really, really thrilled with what we've done. But we've also done things like uh, we did a massive um, transformation program with one of the largest airline caterers in the world, which, which helped them completely change the way in which they uh, went about buying food on a global basis. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was like a three-year program and was massively successful. So, yeah, we've got loads of good examples, but I, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to steer no, away. No, but answers on a postcard if you want to guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, you, can win, you can win a weekend with David in Wales. Um, so, <laughs> so <laughs> um, and what about AI and the impact of that? I mean, that's something we don't actually have on the question. It's just occurred to me um, in terms of helping efficiency and helping uh, supplier cost and waste and sustainability and all these things. Are you starting to see that already or not so much? Um, well, we're, 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 we're currently in investigating a project which will, uh, we think, you know, transform the way in which we look at data. Um, and, uh, that, that because, you know, if you look at, if you look at the food service price index, for example, it draws 10 and a half million lines of transactional data from suppliers every month. Um, that data is massively underexploited in terms of what it can tell us and, and, and how it can uh spot trends and all sorts of stuff that we're just not using it for so there's there's thinking about doing that um and also helping us you know at the moment our our data analysis in-house is really clunky we, we, are, we have lots of analysts they're very good they're brilliant but actually we'd like them to be doing stuff that is human rather than um than actually just an analyzing themselves um but probably the the really 
interesting thing and it, it, it kind of plays back into your question about um about sustainability um if you think about the supply chain in the uk you you, you well actually anywhere in the world you, you you essentially start with somebody growing stuff or catching stuff or hunting stuff then that goes to usually to a processor who'll wash it or clean it or bag it or something it will then often go to some form of value add um uh, into a manufacturer or a processor of some description um uh before it then might even go um uh, across the english channel or whatever it'll it'll may be imported or exported but then it will go into a warehouse uh and it'll be stored and picked and then delivered to an operator and typically those value chains are like six or seven uh steps long mm -hmm. they are in silos complete silos so nobody actually knows if you think about the transaction process nobody knows what's coming at them at all mm. so everybody in that in that supply chain guesses how much they make or how much they're going to grow or how much they're going to pick and what you get is a thing called a bullwhip um, which is that uh restaurant orders 10 uh, the wholesalers already ordered 12 because he wants to make sure you've got enough um the manufacturers already made 14 or 15. the processor behind the manufacturers actually made 18 and the grower has picked 20. so you you end up with this big bullwhip and that's why you have so much food waste in the supply chain so i think where the where the big leap forward on ai will be is actually joining up all that data properly mm -hmm. and providing really high quality the high quality predictive forecasts mm -hmm. all the way from one end to the other and when that happens that will push down the price of food and hospitality significantly yeah double digit for sure yeah there's be so much waste out because I, I did a podcast with an ai expert victoria uh, albrecht a, a little while ago oh yeah and yeah. Uh, victoria said something really interesting that there was restaurants out there that have cameras in the kitchen now so that yeah. when the plate's taken back, you show it, and then that will feed reverse-wise, you know, what's being wasted, and then they can engineer better. I just thought yeah. it was fascinating, you know, because you just don't think about these things, you know. Um, really, really interesting. So, yeah, it was good. But listen, Thank I better you. let you go soon. Um, so there's a couple of uh, just wee things just to wrap up. So just for um, people listening then, in summary, the data, the experts, um, but also, you know, just if there was one thing that they could look at in their business, what, what would the recommendation be? No, actually, that's a really, I, I would just say it's got to be benchmark, benchmark your pricing because yeah. that's the only single thing you can do. Mm -hmm. Everything else is kind of joined up to other things. Yeah. If you just do them on their own, they won't have much impact. Much, but the pricing yeah. can, at least gives you a point where you go, oh, actually, we've got a problem. Because so many people just don't know whether they got a problem or not. No, that's good advice. So what's next for you? What's next for Prestige Purchasing? And what's next for the hospitality industry in your world, do you think? Um, okay, for me, um, I'm um, I'm going to stay as Chairman of Prestige for um, as long as um, they'll let me. Um, because <laughs> I just, I love the business and I, I, I love supply chain. Um, but I've also... Um, I'm also about to start a position as chairman of a coffee company called Workshop Coffee. Are you? Uh, 
which will be a really interesting um, new venture for me. Oh, workshop coffee are fantastic. No, yeah, oh, good for you. How, how many are there now? Uh, well, actually, the 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 strategy is actually not to have uh, more retail sites. Ah. The strategy is to um, is to form partnerships uh, with operators and and to sell wholesale yep. uh, product on both online to consumers and uh, and in in the trade. And Workshop have been fantastic at picking up really top end uh, clients in mm. the last. Uh, in the last year it's a it's a hugely um i mean this coffee is absolutely awesome i'm not surprised and you know um i used to work out the one in clarkenwell all the time and uh, yep. I, I just really enjoyed it but do you know one day i must have been feeling fancy i paid nearly nine pounds for a mexican sort of deconstructed sort of like coffee thing and it, it was it was lovely, but yeah, I thought I'd, I when I I don't know I just was feeling fancy, and uh, yeah, it, yeah, it was just yeah, I felt very bougie that day. That. It's yeah, the thing that really surprised me because I I didn't know it well is is actually it is possible to have, um, you, you know this that there's this whole thing about um, uh, what what you call old people's coffee versus young people's coffee, right? Which is kind of going on right now, and um, you know the very heavy heavy fruited coffees that the that young people like and the sort of nasty burnt coffee that old people like and uh workshop had just produced this coffee called article um which i've been trying out on uh, some of my more mature friends and it's really interesting because they've managed to create a blend that has some of the amazing characteristics of those young people's coffees mm. but with just that nice note of uh, uh, depth and nuttiness and bitterness that you get out of that the old the older generation yeah. and i think that's that 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 coffee is just going to be so successful because it's just magic yeah it's like middle middle kind of crowd pleaser yeah it's, yeah it's the total crowd pleaser yeah, yeah. so yeah. oh well i look forward to that that's great um mm. and then what do you think about hospitality over the next couple of years what what, what are you foreseeing um in your world um, well, I think I, I think there's a couple of things to say. Probably, as I said earlier, I think the growth of um, the innovators, you know, the Pigs Pilgrims and the Hartwoods and Honest Burgers and Deshume, etc. Those those businesses, I think, are, are accelerating fast out of um, the, the end of the COVID period. And I think, you know, it's funny, actually, because you, you sent me this question a few, uh, maybe six or seven days ago, and I actually wrote down the reinvention of the giants. Um, because I do, th you know, pr prior to what we heard from TIA, yeah, yeah. and I do think we are going to see a lot of quite dramatic, um, uh, both product development and M&A, mm. amongst the big uh, businesses because they've got to pivot in order to be competitive in a market which has got an, an ever-increasing number of excellent fast-growing medium-sized businesses so i think there's i think there's that and i think that you know at, looking at it from a um looking at looking at it from a supply chain perspective i think it's all about um it's all about shorter supply chains um we will see a, um we'll see a growth of um fr fresh produce being sourced much closer to uh, where it's actually consumed um uh, which i which i think is long overdue to be honest with you 
um, yeah. and and a big push on you know, even more push on on fresh product. And and by the way, um, I, I suspect also um, an expansion of the use of frozen product, which is proving itself to be excellent. I mean, we we are often using frozen product in. Uh, in product tastings, defrosted in, in a blind tasting, and people choose that product over the yeah. fresh product. Yeah. So it's it, there's some really interesting things blowing away, and and I think probably a lot of focus on waste in the in the next five to ten years as well in our sector. Great. Okay. Well, some fun questions just to finish up then. So we do a wee market yeah. of ten. So favorite city to eat in, and you're well travelled. So. I am well travelled, but I, I, I have to tell you, I I, I can't see past London. I, I, <laughs> I'd love to take. I mean, you know, I I absolutely adore Hanoi, for example. I I love Shanghai. Um, yeah, there, there's there's some amazing cities to eat in, but just for for the constant stream of innovation that exists in London, I I just can't see. Uh, nobody else beats it. I'm afraid. Yep. No, yeah, I agree. A more interesting answer, but that's the yeah. truth. No, I can understand. Favorite hotel? Is it in Kirby? <laughs> <laughs> it used to be called the Cherry Tree. Yes, um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I would probably choose. Um, I'd probably choose any of the pigs. To be honest with you, yeah, I could choose. Um, and, and the reason why? I mean, I think Robin's done a fantastic job. You know, with, with them overall. But I particularly love the way they've ripped up the rule book on sourcing. You know, they 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 are sourcing very ultra local, and they're building menus that are built in order to achieve ultra local. And and that's I, that's so admirable. I'm a real fan of it. Apart from workshop, what's your favourite <laughs> coffee shop? Well, if I was going to choose one, coffee shops I, I love because a bit like you, I suspect I end up working in them an awful lot of the time. Um, I, 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 I'm a huge fan of Gales. Um, oh yeah. Um, uh, the coffee's great. Um, and, and I have probably eaten more than my share of blueberry custard brioche than most oh, humans. I've never had that. All right. Okay. I need to check that. Well, uh, actually, uh, Marta is up for CEO of the year. I think at Peach. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I thought she looked like the front runner when I saw it. If I was a betting man, which yeah, we should maybe run a wee book on it. Well, it's it, it's amazing how they've yeah, you're dead right. It's amazing how that business has. It was very picky about where it went early mm. on, um, you know, in terms of demographic. But what I think they're proving now is that it can almost go anywhere. It's it's um, it's a kind of you know, somebody referred to it as the Southern Gregs. Yeah, you know, I think that's really it's, it's probably a degrading statement, perhaps. But it's you know they are, it is really phenomenally great on on quality, and that's what succeeds now. Yeah, oh, it's it's fantastic. They're winning on staff as well because people don't want to work at night, and yeah, I, I, they're just doing a great job. So no, I'm I'm in huge ad admiration. I used to work with Marta at Pret actually, so um, yeah, she's just skyrocketed, and you know you could always always see the potential there. So really pleased for her and the team and Tom and everyone. Um, favorite bar? Well, it, I, I would I would or be I would be tempted to say um, the uh, saloon bar of the Angel in Lanard Lois, where I live. Ah. Which, which, when Wales are playing England, is quite the most exceptional place to to have a drink. 
but I'm I'm going to go for the American bar at the Stafford, which is my long term favourite, and I'd always I always have an old fashioned there because they make them so beautifully. Very nice, classy, and then favourite restaurant and what you'd have. Oh, is is that this week or? Well, uh, whenever you want. Yeah, yeah. It's always a snapshot in time, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, the, what's particularly impressed me recently is Miznon in Soho. Uh huh. Um, it's it's uh, Isle Shani's um, pizza restaurant. Um, I took took some guys from the um, uh, from the industry there a couple of weeks ago, and it blew their socks off. Um, they 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 do this thing called a magic mushroom pizza, which is um it doesn't make you high which is <laughs> Shame. But, but boy is it tasty um and and probably just if i can have a reserve i'd probably say the car the car hotel in sutherland okay uh, which has the best scallops and langoustines and oysters and lobsters that you've ever tasted in your life in fact if i could predict my death i would go there for my last meal yeah yeah you just sneak it in under the crossbar yeah, brilliant well listen it's been a real pleasure talking to you and thanks so much for you know letting us into your world as i say it's a subject that i clearly don't know tons about but um it was great to just you know learn about it and i think people listening will just get so much from it and um and obviously you know you're always there to help if if anyone needs a, a wee chat or anything you know i can put the details in the in the show um but yeah and just when we caught up the other day i just thought this would be a really good subject to talk about and it's slightly different than what we usually talk about and i think it'd be great for the, the listener base to hear it so thank you so much for imparting your knowledge well thanks for the great questions it, it uh it made it very easy thank you great okay and then i'm seeing you soon right indeed yes okay well i'll uh, i'll try my best to, to wear something smart to come and see you so yeah <laughs> that's exciting Definitely don't do that <laughs> you should absolutely come uh, in any way you want to come for sure <laughs> brilliant. thanks so much david that's been brilliant cheers Good to see you mate take care thank you So there we go, a fantastic chat with David Reed, who's the founder and chairman of Prestige Purchasing. I learned so much in our chats, a world that I don't really know, but I really hope that you'd be able to get in touch with David and the Prestige Purchasing team to help you streamline and lower your supply chain, logistics and operational costs and also more importantly, improve your operational efficiency to help your entire business all the way through to your guest experience. This podcast is sponsored by Vita Mojo, the all-in-one restaurant management platform helping operators grow ATV, reduce tech complexity and serve guests better. Just visit vitamojo.com forward slash supersonic and get in touch with the team right away. That's vitamojo.com forward slash supersonic. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off for another podcast, and I'm really looking forward to the next time we're together. Next time, we'll hear from many, many more interesting people with top tips, tricks, and tales that will make your brand boom.